I'd like to welcome everyone. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone to this lunch with um, a man who probably needs no introduction, Greg Bortenson, the author of uh, Three Cups of Tea. Here it is. Um, I will just briefly introduce him and tell you a little bit, just briefly introduce myself as well. I'm Elizabeth Buemiller. Um, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. I cover the Pentagon. And um, I'm very happy to welcome you here for the, what's going to be a wonderful conversation. I'm just going to ask, um, introduce Greg for just a few minutes, ask one or two questions, and then open up the floor because we have to be out of here by 1 o'clock. And I know people in this crowd, and I know you have lots of questions. Um, Greg, as you probably know, is the... Um, his book has sold 3.6 million copies. Uh, it's been published in 41 countries. It's been a New York Times bestseller for three years, since 2007. Um, it grew out of a wrong turn he took um, in 1993 while um, trying to make an attempt on the uh, on Pakistan's K2. Uh, he took a wrong turn into a village and um, called Corfe, am I pronouncing that right? And, uh, and in, the, in the process of having the villagers take care of him and nurture him back to strength, he promised them that he would come back and uh, build them a school. And lo and behold, he did. And that was the first of what, is, what he's just told me now is close to 200 schools in Pakistan and Afghanistan by the end of this year for, um, for girls and for boys, but largely for girls. Um, in between, he was kidnapped for eight days by the Taliban uh, in 1996 in Pakistan's uh, northwest, northwest frontier province. He's overcome two fatwas against him by enraged Islamic mullahs. Um, and his book, in, in, which is very interesting to me, is now required reading for senior um, military commanders uh, in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. Um, last, just last year, um, Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, traveled all the way to um, a remote part of Afghanistan to attend the opening of another one of Greg's schools. Um, and uh, last thing I should say that uh, Greg was born in 1957. He grew up in uh, Tanzania on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, and he lives now in Montana. And I should say that my connection to, to him is, uh, besides, <laughs> we think, relatives in Cincinnati and also uh, in relatives Denmark. in Denmark. Um, uh, I should say that I was just uh, in May in, um, in Helmand province, uh, embedded with the Marines there, and I was in a village called Mianposhte, and one of the things the Marines were doing was working on building a local school. And they had thrown all of their energy into this school, and this is a story that you can see now across uh, many parts of Afghanistan. So it's, it's a sign of a very different, um, different U.S. military after not nearly nine years of war. So the first question I will ask, which is the title of this talk, which is um, how, uh, well, how has three cups of tea um, affected military strategy in Afghanistan, U.S. military strategy? Well, thanks, Elizabeth, and I would like to thank you for joining us for lunch. I got a little banana, so I'm set too. <laughs> and um, I also like to thank Kitty Boone for setting this all up. And also, our staff who's here, Christiane Leidinger, she's head of Pennies for Peace, and Jeff McMillan, who's eating the other half of the banana in the back, and Curtis Nielsen, who is um, he's, um, doing a play with the American Theater tomorrow at 10 a.m. Um, at the Black Box. He, he basically, he's me in a, in a one-man drama um, or theater, and in an acts three cups of tea. I, I think it's sold out, but 10 a.m. tomorrow morning at the high school, just maybe you can... Um, 
push your way in if you want to see. Um, uh, it's really amazing how he's been able to transform this into theater. So thank you very much. So again, sorry, your question again. <laughs> okay. How how I've has or how has three cups of tea, to the extent that you can judge that, uh, affected U.S. military policy in Afghanistan? Well. With, with, with all due sincerity, trying to be humble, but I, um, I was contact, I, I'm a veteran, I was in the army in two years, I was a medic in Germany, so I, I feel some kindred spirit with the military. Um, I'm also, you know, I really, I'm an advocate that peace comes through education and not bombs and that kind of philosophy. Um, about four years ago, I started getting contacted by the military, and, and if you read Three Cups of Tea, um, actually, right after 9-11, I was fairly critical of the military. I went to the Pentagon twice, and I said, they're all laptop warriors, and there's no boots on the ground. And um, so when I got started contacted by the military, and this was the first entity of any government agency, you know, State Department or the, our political leaders, uh, the military asked me to come and, and talk to them about cultural awareness and understanding. So I was a little bit taken back at first, but then I, I dove into it, um, you know, and um, I do this totally as a volunteer. We don't receive any federal money, and uh, I visit um, this this year about two dozen military bases. I help br brief troops going overseas. I've also uh, spent a lot of time with most of our military commanders now, Admiral Mike Mullen, General Petraeus, General McChrystal, or, uh, um, Eric Olson, Admiral Eric Olson, and so um, what they told me is, um, General Petraeus, I'll just summarize it in some bullet points, General Petraeus, who read Three Cups of Tea, he said there are three important lessons in this book that he, want, he had gleaned that he wanted to impart with the troops. And being a military general, he summarized them in three bullet points. So it makes it really handy here. <laughs> but number one, he said we need to listen more. And by listening, it doesn't mean just sit and listen like you're doing now, but it means that we... we um, we have to look at a situation from their perspective and not from our own myopic lens and our background. Number two, that we have to have respect. And by respect, the main word he used is humility. We have to go out and serve with humility. And number three, we have to build relationships. And I, I think that's the real key is, is about building relationships. I, um, I just maybe one more comment because McChrystal's been on and the Rolling Stones and everything's a lot in the news, right? Yeah. Um, I, uh, General McChrystal was appointed ISAF commander last April. He replaced uh, General McKiernan, who was sacked. And um, the first thing General McChrystal did is contacted me and a few other people who had been on the ground for many years. And they asked um, for us to help facilitate meetings with the elders or the Shura in Afghanistan. And uh, in Afghanistan, there are 34 provinces. Uh, they keep on adding. There was 32 and probably 35 in a year. 34 provinces, and every province has 50 to 200 shura. A shura is an elder, and these are warriors, they're poets, they're businessmen, there's some women, and they're not elected, but they are the real credibility in the country. And so we, over time, over the last year, probably have facilitated about three dozen meetings. And uh, again, I want to say we've done this entirely on our own volition, these elders paid their own way to Kabul to come and meet the commandant. They call him Sitara, meaning the star, you know, the big general. And it was very fascinating in the course of these meetings, this is the first time this has really gone on, what the elders and General McChrystal and his advisory team 
were saying. And, and I'd like to also, you know, in all my meetings that I was, that I was at, I never heard one word uh, comment about, you know, what was in the Rolling Stones article. And McChrystal's travel team was different than the team in Afghanistan. So, um, and what I saw was really involving the military and, um, you know, going out, uh, building relationships with the elders, listening, learning, and that's part of the whole philosophy. And also, um, more recently, uh, General McChrystal and, and the Pentagon, there's an there's a operation that they were going to do this summer called Operation Omid in Kandahar. And Omid means hope in Pashto. But that operation was delayed mostly in part due to the fact that the elders told General McChrystal before he was relieved or retired or whatever, they told him that you do not have the relationships in this area, so do not start an operation. First, get relationships. Think friendly-centric and not enemy-centric. And he actually listened to them, and then he appealed to the White House to say, we can't do this operation right now. And I think our you know, political leaders, they want to have this operation before elections this fall and then with a withdrawal next year. But um, it was it, that had a lot to do with the fact that uh, we're starting to listen to the elders. I have a lot of questions. What, what um, do you think there will be a time when they will be ready for the Kandahar operation? And um, that's one question. And the second part of that is, what is your sense, and then I will leave this to the audience, of the July 2011 deadline? Because, you know, when I was there, you hear from the Afghans, they say to the U.S. troops, why should we work with you? You're going to be gone in a year. The Taliban are going to cut our heads off because we were working with you. So what is your perspective on those two issues? Well, I think my opinion is, just to, and I'll just to give you some facts, right now we have, I think, 96,000 to 100,000 troops. You probably... Close to 100, right. So we have 100,000 troops roughly in Afghanistan. There are 36,000 coalition troops from all the other countries, and there are 90,000 Afghan troops. So if you do the math, it's about 220,000 coalition troops. And according to the um, RAND Institute CI, there's only about 25 to 30,000 Taliban. So we outnumber them already 10 to 1. Um, our budget in Afghanistan this year is 74 billion. It's going to go up to 100 billion. Um, you know, you, you look at it, it costs $1 million per soldier. So um, ultimately, and I've, I've heard this from both General Petraeus and uh, Admiral Mullen, who's the German Joint Chief of Staff, they've said there is no military solution in Afghanistan. I've heard this, I mean, this is what they would tell you right now if you ask that question. The solution is a much broader solution. So I, my own opinion is, well, first of all, there is no military solution, um, but... Um, and the other thing is, I don't think that there should be a calendar deadline. Um, it, and I, I think the other thing is, we do not look at the good things that have been happening in Afghanistan, Pakistan. For example, I don't know how many of you heard me already say this, but I'm going to ask this as a question. Ten years ago, there were only 800,000 children in school in the country, and today there's 9 million children in school, including 2.8 million females. You're so talking about Afghanistan? Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, Pakistan has a very similar... Uh, proliferation and enrollment in schools. So how many of you knew that before I told you right now? Like, uh, Curtis, <laughs> you heard me last night. Okay. You know, isn't that amazing? I, I've spoken, you know, probably to half a million people in the last year, and maybe only 50 people said they were aware of that. You know, part of that responsibility is the media. It's also the public. Um, and I, 
Now that is the greatest increase in school enrollment in any country in modern history. And um, even uh, on Capitol Hill, I was briefing five U.S. senators recently, and I told them about the number of children in school is over nine million, and they were patting themselves on the back, and I said, how can you take credit for something you don't know about? But that's a politician for you, you know, like. <laughs> now, of course, you know, we deserve some credit, but the real driving force behind that is the, it's mostly women and it's communities and the fierce desire for education. There's also been, uh, cut me off, I talk too much. Well, I was gonna, go ahead and then I went. I was finished. <laughs> um, you know, I think the US, we're, we're way too busy, we try to plug in democracy around the world, but you can't plug in democracy, even if that's what people want, you, you have to build democracy. And the two key things in a civil society are education, and then the second is, which is really important, is land ownership. Um, Afghanistan is a feudal society, and that's the other area where in Afghanistan, if you go into the district courts, you'll see the number of women filing titles and deeds for land ownership is skyrocketing, especially with women. And it's, it's, a very, it's very empowering for people when they can get away from their feudal, you know, Raja type of landholder system and really they, they can, um, you know, assert their influence and control their society and, or civil society. Let me just go back to Kandahar. So do you think that there is, the time will be ripe in the near future for the Kandahar operation, as they're calling it? Well, based on what the elder, what you know from the elders, I think, if, just if you talk to the elders, they say if you do a military operation, conventional, right. you know, firepower operation, it's going to be a very catastrophic mistake. Um, there can be a lot of fatalities. It's going to antagonize the people more. You don't have the relationships yet. The other thing is, Pakistan's entire military command is changing in the next few months. General Kayani and their entire, their 10th uh, Division Corps commander, and the U.S. has relationships with the old commanders, but not the new commanders. And Pakistan is a key to that. And the other thing is, um, you know, it's, it's look at really the driving force, what causes a guy to join a militant group? And um, there are several reasons, but it's generally poverty, it's disparity, it's unemployment, it's illiteracy. And so, um, and we have a few former Taliban teaching in our schools, which might sound pretty crazy, but those men have become our greatest champions for girls' education. And they are willing to go out into the most difficult, dangerous areas and advocate for girls' education. But they, they all told me the reason they got out of the Taliban was because their mothers told them, what you're doing is not a good thing. And um, so, um, you know, maybe we can, maybe I think we should, you know, I, I think we should, do, if the elders are saying don't do it right now, I don't think we should go in there, you know, with an entire, with the, the idea is to drive a swath across from Kandahar to Chilman in Pakistan and kind of clean out the Taliban, but um, it's, a, when you, it's, it's very complex to talk about this, but it's, it's a, I really think it'd be foolhardy, especially if the elders have said that, and I, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact the military even, had the had the foresight to, with tremendous pressure on them to, to do something. Last question from the moderator. So what? Uh, this is a big question, uh, and it's hard. To, what is our what is the long term future of the United States in Afghanistan after nine years of war? Are you positive, negative? I know it's hard to know even when you're on the ground. Well, I think if I could speak on behalf of most people there, you know, the average woman or man in a rural village, most people 
they really look up to Americans and they really appreciate us and they think of us as generous, good people. I mean, we, we still, we are also the most generous people on the planet. But I also think um, they're not seeing any tangible results of the presence of the U.S. Um, most of the aid isn't getting out into the communities. There's, there's very little that people see tangible. And, um, you know, most, to be very honest, most people in rural Pakistan, Afghanistan, they never heard of 9-11. They have seen a B-52, they know about the Taliban, and they, they loathe and despise the fact that there are Taliban and Al-Qaeda who are disrupting their civil society. They, they, um, the Taliban don't have anything to offer. They don't have hope. They don't have anything to offer people. So, um, you mean our long-term presence, or? Well, yeah. What's the? Our, there's uh, the, the perception and the, the, the media. The, the perception in the United States right now is that the war is going. There's been setbacks. The war is not going well. Uh, it's hurting President Obama. You know, and so Mike, you're the, you're an expert. We're not really. <laughs> Tell us no. what you. Uh, is I there hope, really or is it is it is it hope? You know, is it hopeless? Well, I think we need to really think out of the box. And um, for example, there was just discovered, well, this has been known for years, but there's over $1 trillion of mineral reserves in, in lithium and right. melod, what's it called, melodium, whatever it's called, and all those chemicals. And um, anyways, selenium. So, you know, there's no school of mines in Afghanistan. It would be very easy to set up a school of mines. Every state in this country has a school of mines. There's also uh, 400 women in law school in Afghanistan. Very, I've talked to these women. They're, it's very difficult for them. They're ostracized. They're kind of treated like old maids. They're also marginalized. They're also they don't have the they're very they're very they're struggling. They're, they're some of them are starving and they're trying to get their law degree. And um, these women will become the future judges, lawyers, and politicians of the country. So why can't we, you know, maybe? Why can't we do some things like set up a school of mines, set up a, you know, help the women in law school and some of the areas where they really could, you know, benefit rather than having outsiders come and exploit their country. Um, the, um, and again, like there has been a military academy set up in, like a West Point in Afghanistan. It's one of the 24 universities in the country. It's probably the finest university in the country. It was set up by a high school teacher in Oklahoma who was a colonel of the National Guard. But in the, the military academy, they have animal husbandry, agronomy, they have horticulture, they have a nursing school, they have a medical school, they have, um, and uh, uh, students from all over the country wanna go to this university. So, you know, there's, there's areas where, despite any military thing, that there are some areas where we could really make a huge difference in that country and help the people get on their own feet. Okay, thank you. Uh, audience, uh, there's people in the back with, um, Microphones? Uh, yes, right here in the front. And I'm not really expert on national policy. I, just, <laughs> no. I can just tell you what some people in the villages say. <laughs> Why can't the military continue to be in Afghanistan even though there isn't a, quote, military solution? Can't they supply the stability that's needed for the social act, uh, and community building activities that you think are useful? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a, <coughs> the military has done a lot of good things. One is uh, training of the, the um, 
the Afghan military, who is getting a lot more credibility, training of the police, setting up uh, vocational centers. Um, you know, ideally, it would be great to send over 30,000 Birkenstock warriors to Afghanistan, but the problem is, if we do that, only a few crazy people like you and me and maybe Curtis will sign up. So in the meantime, our military now has a very difficult role. Our soldiers have to be humanitarians, diplomats, and warriors. And it's, it's you know, I'm just a humanitarian. That's, that's all I can handle, let alone be a diplomat or a warrior. So, and it, I think it's a little bit unrealistic that we expect our military to solve everything. On the other hand, as you might know, our military, our DOD budget this year is 700 billion. State Department budget is only 50 billion, and then the USAID budget's like I don't know what it is, five billion or eight billion. So, um, and then our budget's like one one thousandth of that. So, <laughs> anyways, um, but um, there is a lot of um, like uh, troops now. They're like farm or say people growing up on ranches in Montana or Oklahoma people who have worked with water in rural Oklahoma who are helping uh, the people over there. Another big problem in Afghanistan is is 80% of their military is illiterate. And I didn't, I didn't know about this until recently, but we have uh, women's vocational centers in Afghanistan where women learn how to read and write and uh, learn how to use computers and uh, hygiene, sanitation, nutrition, etc. But at night, Afghan soldiers were walking two hours to come to our women's literacy centers, and they said they would pay us money to open up the centers, teach them how to read and write and use computers. So one of the proposals I brought to the Pentagon was why not have a GI Bill over there, you know, like our GI Bill, what their GI Bill would be just helping their soldiers become literate and be able to read and write, and um, they could get, you know, some incentives. And um, I kind of did the math. It's very, very cheap, um, you know, roughly. $150 million, it sounds like a lot of money, but compared to the $100 billion we're putting in the country, you know, we could have a great program for their soldiers to become literate. And also, we could have our women teach those soldiers how to read and write. <laughs> they, the, the soldiers could pay the women to teach them how to read and write. Uh, yes, here at the same table. Uh, you mentioned last night that you have studied the Marshall Plan mentioned last night that you studied the Marshall Plan. What about the Marshall Plan is appealing to you in terms of a strategy in Afghanistan? Well, uh, last night I mentioned the Marshall Plan, and I just came from a panel where there was different opinions on the Marshall Plan, but I think, in my opinion, the Marshall Plan was quite a brilliant plan, and the architects were genius. But if, and I've studied the Marshall Plan, especially in like Italy, which I consider a little more provincial, like Afghanistan, you know, not quite, but um, the Marshall Plan, though, if you look at how it was designed, was set up as a provincialized, decentralized process. That was the beauty of it. Now, after 9-11, there was the Bonn Conference in December 2001, which was about two dozen countries got together, and they decided how to rebuild Afghanistan. Um, kind of like Humpty Dumpty story, but, um, and they made pledges, but first of all, hardly anybody gave their money, their pledge, and the second of all, the way they designed it was a very centralized, deprovincialized type of system, the exact opposite of the Marshall Plan, you know, 50, was 60 years ago, and um, only recently in the last maybe two or three years, 
It was started with President Bush and now Obama. They're looking at really working at a provincial and district level and really empowering the people. There's a program in Afghanistan called the National Solidarity Program, which is probably the most successful program in Afghanistan for um, education, health care, health um, um, agronomy, et cetera. But that program is it's an Afghan-run program. It's helped by the U.S., but there's very little kind of up, you know, top town kind of development. Um, another thing that needs to be done that really makes me frustrated is when we set up a school, we provide the teacher training, which is the most important thing. We also provide skilled labor and materials, but the community has to reciprocate by giving free land, free labor, manual labor, sometimes five, six, seven thousand days of free manual labor, and they have to give free resources like wood. So it becomes a kind of a collaboration, 50-50. And then um, when the school gets set up, some of the money they save on the contract by their own free labor, we set up uh, poultry farms, poplar tree plantations, women vocational centers, and then half the money from those revenues go to run the school, and the other half goes to set up a microcredit, like a loan. And, and so then if you compare it with now, I don't want to pick on the government, but um, recently there was a Senator Kerry and Senator Luger bill. Luger is Republican from Indiana, and Senator Kerry's Democrat from Massachusetts. And they appropriated $7.4 billion to Pakistan over the next five years for the social sector, which is a good thing. Most of our money previously had gone to the Pakistan military, which is just being siphoned off to the Indian front, where they bought Swedish, one Swedish not Danish, Gophers, <laughs> 155 millimeter artillery. You know, Sweden manufactures a lot of that stuff. Um, we can pick on Sweden. <laughs> right, right, Any right. Swedes here? Danes always pick on Sweden. Anyways, right. um, <laughs> instead of using that money to chase the Taliban around, which was what it was meant for, but so at least the good thing in that bill is that it was appropriate for health, education, et cetera, in Pakistan. But the thing that I was really frustrating is there's nothing built into that bill that says there's any contingency or reciprocal contribution from Pakistan or their provincial governments. So we're just, and the other thing is that bill's very front heavy, meaning about 60% of the money is gonna go out right away because they say it's very urgent that we do these things. Um, you know, if, if you and I do a contract, you know, usually I'll give you 20% first or 30 and then I'll see how you do it and then I'll give you more money. But, and people respect you in, rural Pakistan, Afghanistan, or even in Africa by your ability to negotiate and bargain and leverage. Um, if you just give somebody money for the carpet or whatever, they're going to laugh at you and your credibility go way down. So I guess I'm saying it's, it's kind of like with my teenage daughter, you got to have a little tough love and got to let her have, you know, have something, but she's got to work for it a little bit. And um, as, a, as a federal agency, um, we, I don't, I mean, you're, you're aware of some, we don't do that very much. We, tend to just write a big check and think everything will be fine. And, and we need to be more stingy. We need to be more tough. We, we also need to have more compassion and humility, but I think we also need to really, you know, when we give people money, um, whether it's our government or, or personally or privately, uh, make sure that you're, those people are responding in some way. Does that make sense? Or yeah. Uh, in the uh, back of the room, the gentleman in the white, short white shirt there, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so when you started your, uh, you know, remarks today, it sounded like you may have been a little bit partial to General McChrystal, and I just wondered when you said 
that the U.S. military is expected to be three things. What do you think the military on the ground in Afghanistan actually thinks about Washington? A apart from McChrystal, what do you think? Do they think they've got Mission Impossible, or what are your thoughts? Well, the media is here right now, so should I talk? Or <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, I, I had tremendous adoration for General McChrystal. Um, I think he brought a lot of change in the military, the doctrine, the philosophy, also valuing human life. He um, also was controversial in the fact that he um, imposed some restrictions on um, killing Taliban if civilians will be killed, which was, um, you know, but it, that did have a big impact, especially like in Helmand province with the people. Um, I also have tremendous respect for General Petraeus. I mean, General Petraeus was the architect of the, the whole philosophy now, so it was McChrystal's boss and mentor. So, um, and, but I do think the, the public now, we're going to have to, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the military to do something. You know, we've, now we've got, McChrystal got his 30,000 troops, and Obama has 100,000 troops over there. He's doubled the troops the last year, so... Um, What's your question again? <laughs> I, I mean, I just I can. I just only slept oh. two hours last <laughs> night. <laughs> just I'll just interject briefly. The 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 soldiers I've talked to. Um, oh, that's right. They um you, and you you can back me up on this. They don't look at the overall picture, and you know, uh, trust me, Mullen and and Gates and even McChrystal are very far away for the guys on the ground in these in these fo the forward operating bases and the and the uh, command outposts, these, these remote outposts in Afghanistan, you know, their, their job is to, um, to make their battle space better in the course of their year-long or seven-month deployment in the case of Marines. And they don't look at the overall picture as much. But I can tell you, some of them are doubtful. I mean, they're like, they're normal people. They're, they're doubtful about the strategy. They just, they want to have their battle space get under control, but in the time that they're there, they, wanna, they don't want to die. And you know they they have mixed feelings about the strategy. They, they, you know, and that's was that what, what you I've agree seen. with that? I mean, first and foremost, if you go right into a platoon or a company, first of all, they want to protect each other. I mean, that is right. their first thing. The second thing is, um, and there's a lot of difference. Um, I I've also seen. I mean, it's only been recently when, for example, I was in Camp Lejeune last year where. Um, U.S. Marine Corps bases and MARSOC, the Special Forces Marines, um, they have to have 30 hours now of cultural training, which sounds maybe kind of wimpy, but um, the Marines who've now gone to Afghanistan said that was part of the best training they got, learning about how to interact and how to sit and how to deal with people. Um, also, many of our Marine Corps NCOs now, before they go to Afghanistan, they have to embed with a gang in Los Angeles for four to six weeks because they're saying that the Taliban is more like a mafia or gang rather than an ideological entity, and that's also been successful. So a lot of the more innovative ideas, ironically, are coming from our military, but I think it's because many of our military have been on the ground three or four times, and I think they really get it. And the, the, the ones, too, that are pushed, um, they when they really understand about, say, friendly-centric versus enemy-centric, I mean, you, your job is to go catch some Taliban or kill them or catch them, but you also have to work with the good people and, and work with them and help them, because um, they also don't like the Taliban. Um, so it varies on the, you know, and as you go up in the ranks, um, it varies also. And 
There's also contention that, as what was revealed in the article, that, that the State Department, our political leaders, um, they're not working together with the military. And there, there is, you know, regardless, there is a big schism there. And they're trying now to show a united front. But, you know, the reality to many soldiers on the ground is it's not a very united front. So we, I think we need to push our leaders um, mm -hmm. to work more together. They're, they're trying, but they, they really have to get along better if they <laughs> want to be effective. See over here, the woman in the um, uh, white. Hi. Uh, firstly, I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you do. I'm a big fan. I actually work for a local nonprofit called Marshall Direct Fund that builds schools out in the Punjab region of Pakistan. Oh, wonderful. And um, my question to you would be, have you engaged in, been tempted to, or felt pressure to for have a formal partnership with the military, either um, on the U.S. or Afghanistan or Pakistan side? Um, well, I don't know if I mentioned this, but we don't receive any federal money and we probably never will. It doesn't mean I don't like the government. On the other hand, we work very hard, I mean extremely hard, all of our staff, uh, to help the military or the State Department or USID. We, I mean, we bend over backwards, sometimes at great risk, but the reason we don't take federal money is because we don't want to be perceived over there as an arm of the U.S. government. On the other hand, um, I'm, I'm trying to, um, we're trying very hard to find or show our government ways that they can really do some really great things. One is, you know, like set up a school of mines, uh, have a literacy program for the soldiers or the police. Another thing that is a problem is, most of the police are illiterate, but there's no judicial system. So the police beat people up on the spot or they demand payment. But you see, if they take that guy to the jail who's committed a crime, then they have to pay for his food, which they don't have the money. And then they don't know if the judge is going to do anything or not. And then the, the people retaliate from the village. So a policeman, although he's supposed to enforce the law, you know, he doesn't have any backing. That's, again, why I think you know, there's no judicial system in Afghanistan. The legal process is pretty non-existent. So they go back to kind of tribal where they meet the tribes, the elders meet, and then they render justice on their own, and which is, you know, in the void of um, security, that's what works. And, you know, I, we're talking about all this military stuff, but I, I, I probably never will have a direct, you know, paid relationship with a military organization, but on the other hand, um, you know, I, I was up all last night trying to help a kidnapping situation involving with the military and um, I um, you know I, we do anything we can to help our government or our military and you know we'd like to we, we enjoy that and I really think you know I, I take great pride in that but on the other hand um, you know I'm not gonna be directly involved with the government maybe I'm contradicting myself but <laughs> uh, this uh, did you want to, the young man over here you had a, in the blue t-shirt have a kid who has a question here. We, you have a question <laughs> you have said that um, children who go to your schools are less approachable by the Taliban because they have more opportunities. What job opportunities do they actually have? Um, well, the the kids when they. There, right now, there isn't many job opportunities. There's started to be creating more jobs. Um, and I first, the first kind of level of jobs are generally 
um, either construction or welding or carpentry or agronomy or, or horticulture or agriculture. Um, most of the girls who get their education, like in the U.S. 100 years ago, they go into nursing or into teaching, but there are also women who go into the police. Um, they're in law school. They're going into all kinds of engineering and many other um, endeavors. But, but it is a part of, that's one thing I mentioned with our schools, they're not just a place of learning, but we also set it up as a place to s develop some revenue. And, and uh, you know, through uh, poultry farms and poplar tree plantations and women's locational centers. But there is still, is a, there is a big lack of jobs in like rural Pakistan, Afghanistan. There's, there's um, and the other thing is, um, I'm always concerned about population explosion. Um, Pakistan, for example, has a female literacy rate of about 36%. The government will tell you 58, but there is a definition of what is literacy, and I go by the UNESCO definition, not that you can just write your name or you know first grade sentence. Um, and Pakistan is going to double in population in the next 27 years, from 175 million to 350 million people. And the the main the number one way to reduce population is just simply female literacy. And the best example is. Bangladesh, um, Bangladesh in 1970, the female literacy rate was less than 20%, and today it's over 65%, it's more than tripled. And the average woman in Bangladesh 40 years ago, she had nine live births. The average woman today has 2.8 live births, just reaching an apex. And the number one reason for that is that Bangladesh back around 1970 put 6 to 8% of the GDP into education. Pakistan in its entire history has never put more than 2% of its budget GDP into education. And until they do that, nothing will change. And everything we do in that country, you know, until they, that's why I'm so adamant about girls' education, because, um, you know, not only reduces infant mortality and sets up uh, more entrepreneurship, but it also reduces the population, which I think is a really big concern in, in like, Pakistan. This gentleman here in the reddish shirt. Right, there's a there's still there's a, a lot of, lack of lack of jobs. I was just curious as to uh, where your schools generally are geographically between the so-called few safe government-controlled areas and areas that are still under the Taliban, which leads to a further question is, if we do move to a lighter footprint in Afghanistan and end up conceding areas to the Taliban and you have schools or learning centers in those areas, What's likely to happen to those schools, given the uh, commitment of the Taliban to uh, not have an educated society, and particularly uh, they don't want the ascendancy of women? Well, it's a very good question. We've thought about that a lot. We've talked to the elders a lot. Um, the first is that um, we are, our schools are actually, they're located in many areas of both Pakistan and Afghanistan. In Pakistan, it's mainly up in the north which is mostly Shia, and then also um, extreme north, which is Ismaili, very you know, progressive, say liberal. Um, they don't have any problem with girls' education. But, but then we also are working in, down into the uh, tribal areas. Uh, if you draw a map, it, a swath goes into like Kunar, Nangahar province, Uruzgan province, uh, Logar province. So these are, there's a lot of Taliban there in some areas pretty much like in Uruzgan, the Taliban are pretty much still in control. And we've been able to have schools there because of our relationship with the elders. And the, even the Taliban, to a large degree, 
uh, will respond to the elders. If they, if they really are, you know, cohesive, the Taliban are not going to attack a school that the community has put so much effort into and also that the adv elders are advocating for. But it, and it's, a, it, it's a very delicate relationship and it takes many, many years. So the, your second kind of question alludes to it, what happens if we withdraw or there's a lighter footprint. Well, I do think we might have some effect on, it'll have some effect, but I, I really think our schools will predominantly go on and they'll continue. Um, we're going to have to figure out, you know, how to work with that. But I, whether or not the U.S. is there or not, um, um, even the local militias um, are very protective of our school. These are the local militias, um, and they, but they've had to concede or give a lot of sweat equity into the school. Um, and you brought up a really good point. Um, I brought up some good news earlier, but the bad news is that since in the last three years, or three and a half years now, the Taliban, they bombed, burned, or destroyed over 2,100 schools in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, what's interesting to me is that 90% of schools that have been destroyed, they're girls' schools, and they're not boys' schools. So then the question is, why are the Taliban destroying girls' schools and not boys' schools? You know, what's the big deal about a little girl going to school, and what's so scary? <laughs> well, I think it's because their greatest fear, it's not a bullet, but it's a pen. And they, what they fear the most is if that girl grows up, gets an education, becomes a mother, the value of education will go on their community. So um, they, they're not targeting boys' schools, but they're really going after girls' schools. And, um, but then if you go into the community, you talk to the women, you talk to the elders, nearly all of them say, we want our daughters to go to school. We want education. Um, you know, I, I kind of say this in a joking way, but some areas, we have very hard and stubborn mullah, and we go in there and say, so what's it going to take for us to get a girls' school started in your village? And he'll say, I'm not allowing one girl to go to school. And then you ask him, well, if I want to buy a third wife um, from your village, you know, some young woman, and she's illiterate, how many goats do I have to pay you? So he'll say, well, maybe five goats. And then you ask him, well, if she has a fifth grade education, how many goats do I have to pay you? And then he'll say, well, maybe 20 goats. And then uh, you say, if she has a high school education, how many goats? And I'm kind of joking, but this is really kind of how we have to do things sometimes. He'll say, well, maybe 40 goats. And I say, how many girls in your village do you have that are eligible to go to school? And he'll say, maybe 200. And then you can see him doing some higher math, you know, like 8,000 goats. <laughs> but even, you know, I'm saying this kind of a joking way, but seriously, even though he's illiterate, he's been told and taught that girls' education is taboo or haram, but yet even in his own mind, um, there's some value in girls' education. So, you know, we use anything we can to convince, you know, some um, resistant person to get girls to go to school. Okay, I've gotten a signal. This, is a this will have to be the last question over here in the black uh, shirt. Oh, I can answer them quickly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a, you've been talking about the numbers, how much money um, we're spending in different ways, and I just had the question, what is your budget and how is that deployed? To give um, us some comparable our budget right now versus the income it's about four million dollars um, it, it was about two million you know we we've been so blessed to have phenomenal support most nonprofits you get 90 percent of your money from five percent of the donors or ten percent we're the exact flip opposite you know the the largest contribution we had until you know well up up till last year was one hundred fifty thousand dollars and 
Um, this year, I think we got a 300,000, but um, which is a lot of money. But you know, and what I to me is is so exciting, and it really shows how wonderful American people are. Is we get support from liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, Jews, Muslim, Christians, agnostics. Um, you know, if I said some names, some of you might be shocked. But they, you know, I think education is something that can bring our polarized society together, and I, f I feel it's a great honor. It's also very important that we, you know, we very we take really good care of that money, and we also, with the donation, um, you know, I, I tell people that you need to know that that is going to be matched by the community. It's not just going to be a donation, but the community is going to match that, and then they're going to leverage together other communities to match at the district and provincial level. So. Um, I don't know, if, but that's roughly what our budget is now. It's it's gone up a lot. I mean, we were um, six years ago. I think it was about three hundred thousand dollars, and um, and we we just very very you know we can do a lot of things with 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 that kind of money. So it cost the U.S. one million dollars per soldier. So I was thinking per year. So maybe if we could pull a hundred soldiers back, <laughs> and then we could build lots of schools. <laughs>